help you. If, there we go. Good morning. That child that was crying in the back really wanted to stay. <laughs> he might be crying in a few minutes going, let me go, but that's okay. If you weren't awake, you are night, so we're all good. This thing does not like me at all. Let's hope that works. Sign man's not giving me any instructions, so that's okay. Just keep talking. Good man, thank you. I might be really rude, but can anyone, is, it, is there any water? Can I get a bottle of water? Thank you. It's common. Preferably not used. <laughs> not that we're germaphobes, but you know. And really, thank you again for singing that song. I really like this church. You don't have to keep singing the song, you know, to make me like you. I already do. But thank you, brother. At least you didn't squirt it on me. That's good. That verse when it says, Christ the sure and steady anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptations claims the battle, and it seems the night has won, deeper still then goes the anchor. Today, that anchor goes deeper. Why? Because we come to worship our great God. Though I justly stand accused, we can all say amen to that, I will hold fast to the anchor. And it's those last five words. It shall never, and we should make never huge, bold, underlined, italics, everything we can, shall never be removed. Praise God. We come here today, and I know I do. It's been a hard week. It's been a busy week. It's been a week full of sin, a week full of anguish in my own soul. But yet you come here and you worship with God's people in Veritas, and your soul from being down there is lifted up. I want to encourage this little church. You've been more of an encouragement to me than you may ever realize. And I don't say that lightly. I go to other places to church. I'm not Billy Graham with a tent mission or anything else, but they do ask me to go preach in other places. This is special here. Very special. You might think it's just the mundane to come in and do the same thing every week, but it's not. It's encouraging. It's uplifting. So on behalf of me, Merv Campbell from IBC, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I may never, ever preach here again. And you all laugh, so I may never preach again. Who knows? <laughs> I'm glad Eric's not here. I spent three hours with him at a sushi bar the other week. And that guy likes a sushi. But you have a pastor and Eric, and I'm sure the other elders as well, who care for this flock so much. He grilled me for three hours. And then I grilled him for about two minutes and then we had to leave. But he really genuinely loves you guys. So as a man who stands here and preaches, can I encourage you? Pray for him. The things that we do up here, they aren't easy. There's a man sitting down there with a shiny bald head called Pastor Jeff who doesn't have an Irish accent, doesn't have a Scottish accent. I don't quite know where he thinks he comes from, but <laughs> next, next week that brother will stand up here and proclaim the word of God. As I say my last amen, start praying for him. And start praying for the men each and every week. God's word is special. It's true. But it's hard to bring it to people. Very hard. The text that I'm going to preach this morning, and this is where I may get lynched, so I'm going to put it out there right away. I am going to preach the text from the New King James Version. I got good stuff. Okay, I didn't get lynched. Woo! I was slightly worried. And we'll get to the whole 
context of the verse in a minute or two, but if you have a Bible, New King James, ESV, whatever it is, turn again to Acts chapter 26. And let's pick up again at verse 12. Acts 26, verse 12. While thus occupied, and this is Paul speaking, while thus occupied as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you have seen and of the things which yet I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to heavenly wisdom, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And as he made thus, made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, here beside yourself, much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since these things was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he had said these things, the king stood as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. And then Agrippa said to Festus, this man, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. And here reads the word of God. This morning, my text is that text of verse 28. And it's right out the gate that we have our differences. But I'm going to preach it with the words of, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. These eight little words have to be the saddest ever to grace the pages of the Bible. It strikes at the very heart of the problem of man and woman today. However we are to understand this verse properly, we have to put that verse right all the way back into its context. What gets us to this point? What's the situation? 
Why is Paul giving a defense of himself to this man who turns around and says, you almost? The apostle Paul had been kept prisoner for over two years in Caesarea by the Roman governor, Felix. However, Felix was now had, had been replaced by another man called Festus. And straight away, before this man can even settle in, those Jews who put our Lord to death are banging on the door once again. They're wanting to see Paul delivered to them. Chapter 25, verse 2, we learn that Festus had just taken office when the chief priests and the elders came to complain about Paul. Why? Man, they hated him. Why? Because Paul had been one of them. Had been. He was now preaching the gospel, which they hated. Although he had been one of them for many years, their hatred of Paul, and even though he'd been gone for two years, their hatred was still there. It was just bubbling on the surface. And as they got this new guy Festus in, they thought, hey, let's get rid of him once and for all again. However, the new governor refuses to condemn Paul. He refused. He said no. Not long after this, we have a special introductory service that was held for the new governor. The new governor that was coming into Caesarea. The Jewish king, Agrippa, comes to pay a visit with his sister Bernice. And they come to repay their respects to the governor. After certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came into Caesarea to salute Festus. It's kind of a diplomatic visit. Ever see the presidential parade driving around? You've got all the limos and the cars and the police and everything else. Slightly different in those days. You'd have had horses and camels and who knows what else. Weird things going on. But they came to visit. Agrippa, Bernice, come to salute Festus. Agrippa is interested in what Festus has to tell him. He brings up Paul's name. He says, hey, I have a problem. I have this guy, Paul, this guy who I've inherited from my predecessor and whom this man whom the Jews want to kill. So they come together. Big event. Lots of pomp and ceremony. They entered into the place of the hearing with the chief priests and the principal men of the city. The meeting that Paul was about to have wasn't going to be some in-the-corner quiet affair. It wasn't going to be in some dark room with only spiders' webs for company. No. This occasion had a degree of pomp, had a degree of ceremony. Festus, Agrippa, Bernice, and anyone who was anyone was here. We all see the big picture now that this was a huge event. This is not some little pokey thing. This morning I want to concentrate on three main people. Paul, Agrippa, and Bernice. These, for me, play a central role in everything that culminates to that one verse. Verse 28. Just who were these people? What did they do? Why was it that Agrippa said those eight sad, sorry words? Well... First of all, who were they? Paul. If I was to go around the room and ask for a show of hands who Paul was, we'd get many different answers. And no one raised their hands, so that's good. No one knows who Paul is. Excellent. <laughs> we know Paul well today. Why? Because half the New Testament was written by him. Maybe even Hebrews, but that's for a different day. We all know that he wrote over half the New Testament. It was said that Paul wasn't really much to look at. He wasn't physically big or strong or anything else, and he, perhaps he wasn't attractive. We don't know. However, when Paul used this, people listened. When Paul spoke, people pricked their ears. His words weren't those of great orators or modern-day politicians that waffle and wane and go off every different direction. His words in Acts 26 are not light words. They are heavy 
hard having words. His words were the word of life. His words were the gospel. And his words were spoken to show Agrippa that he needed to come to Christ. And he wanted to share the good news of the gospel. Did you notice in our reading that Paul made that great defense of the gospel? But his purpose was in one person, Agrippa. His eye is on Agrippa the whole time. He mentions Agrippa's name all the time during his defense. He does it in verse 2, verse 7, 13, 19, 27. He made direct reference to Agrippa all the time. There's no doubt in my mind that Paul was after this man. He eyeballed him. He looked him straight in the eye and he kept addressing him. Now I could end my sermon here with this conclusion. Some of you might go, great, happy days, but sorry to tell you it's not. There is a great lesson for us here as believers, is there not? Here is Paul, okay? And Paul is in the midst of this great gathering. And he had all the leaders, and he had all the dignitaries of the city, and all the men around him. And he also had a group of people around who wanted to kill him. But he's not afraid. He is not one bit afraid. Fear those, or do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill body and soul. We too, Veritas, we too should be able to, with boldness, to proclaim the truth of God at any time, in any circumstance. Should you be standing in front of Queen Elizabeth II, defend the faith, not the faiths, but the one true and only faith. You go to meet Donald Trump, preach the gospel to him. You go to meet a little four-year-old boy, five-year-old girl, tell them the truth, tell them the gospel. Do not be afraid. Paul stood there with no fear. Why? Because he'd God on his side. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. God was with Paul in that very place. And God is with you. Do you actually believe that? You can say you believe it. But do you really? When fear comes upon us, it's a terrible thing. Some might say that I show no fear. Have you seen my hands while the lady was playing the guitar up here? It was like this. Fearful. God tells us not to be. He tells us in Matthew that we actually are commanded to be salt and light. Remember what he says about the salt. If the salt loses its flavor or its savor, what is it useful for? Trample it onto your foot. This morning, are you salty? We're called to be a light. How many of us this morning, if we had an old telly lamp, does anyone know what a telly lamp is? Wow, I'm really Irish this morning, okay? <laughs> but a telly lamp, you're going to get a history lesson, was a lamp they had in Ireland. The bottom part is filled with oil, and it has a canvas cotton wick coming up. And the oil keeps seeping up, and seeping up, and it keeps that light shining bright. But there's a tiny little knob on the side, and if you go can turn the light way down. How many of you this morning have turned that light all the way down till it's almost out? We need to be men and women who are on fire for God. Not merely little flickering, whatever you want to call it. 
You know when you get the candle and it's right down to the bottom and it's sort of wanting to go out and it doesn't? We should be a roaring fire. Not anything that we have in and of ourselves, but because God will help us. Do not try and do these things in and off your own strength because you will fall flat on your face. God is the only one who can help you. Maybe I should stop there, but I won't. So that's Paul. Not afraid. Then we get to this guy, Agrippa. Okay? We're going to give him his full title. Wish I had a title like this. His full title was King Herod Agrippa II. Pretty cool. When you read the New Testament, you will come across the name King Herod many, many times. And I hope some of you are already going, ding, light bulbs going off. His whole family was family of kings. This man was the very last of the Herodian kings. It was this man's great-grandfather, Herod the Great, who did what? Killed the babies in Bethlehem. Remember when Christ was being born, there was a King Herod who was slaughtering all the babies. This is this guy's grandfather. It was this man's uncle, Herod Antipas, who beheaded John the Baptist. It was this man's father, King Herod I, who put to death the Apostle James. Therefore, this man's grandfather, uncle, and father were the men who had been opposing the gospel for years. They hated the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. All these men sadly then died. Well, not sadly because they were opposed, but these men were disgraced shortly after all these events happened. I'm sure as Agrippa sat there, he had these things in his mind. He listened to Paul. But somehow the destiny of his family had been mixed up with the faith of Jesus Christ for this, what, three generations. So you can imagine that when Festus mentions Paul preaching Jesus, that Agrippa immediately, what? What did you say? Think of our own selves. Think of something that opposes us that comes up on the news. We kind of prick our ears to hear what are they saying. Perhaps you've done it here in church or you've done it in work where you've walked past and perhaps you hear your name being mentioned in a conversation that you aren't in. And you go and you try to earwig in what they're saying. Hey, we've all done it. Let's be honest. But as Agrippa heard the name Jesus, his ears were pricked. His conscience was pricked. You see, Agrippa was also an expert in Jewish affairs. He was also an expert in Jewish religion. Paul says that in verse 3, that he was an expert in all the customs and questions which were among the Jews. But for the very first time, this man who was an expert in these things was about to hear the one true Messiah and the message of the gospel. He was about to hear the second greatest preacher because Christ was first. But Paul was about to preach the true gospel of Christ to this man. But. There's always a but in every story. The last of these, and in my eyes, was the key to everything, was this woman, Bernice. So we've had Paul We've had Agrippa, and now we have Bernice. Who was Bernice? She was Agrippa's sister. She had been married to her uncle, and she had deserted him. She married a man called Polygon and had run away from him, and now she lived in a relationship with her brother Agrippa. And they were brother and sister living together as man and wife. You see, you've got to think of these things and remember all these things when you put the Bible into context. All these things played a part. You can understand this man as he sat there and as he listened. He's listening with these 
but these are looking down at perhaps the sin right before him. By his side was his sister, a visible, visible reminder of his own sin and his depravity. And these things obviously crossed his mind as he listened to the preacher in front of him. His background, which was obviously totally against the gospel, it was anti-Christ. His sister reminding him of his very present situation of himself before a holy God. All these things play a part. So we've seen the three main characters. But this morning, I want to really hone in on Paul. Paul's example. That's point number two if you're taking notes. Paul's example. Gives me a heart attack, so I don't know what it does to you. The sooner you get the lapel, brother, the better, please. Before we all have a heart attack, okay? Second of all, Paul's example. Before you this morning in Veritas, okay? That's you guys. You have a preacher who makes no secret of his purpose. Every Sunday, okay, he's not on sabbatical, trust me, he's not. You have a pastor in Eric. Next week, you will have Pastor Jeff. You've had a Scottish guy come for the past couple of weeks. Okay, Mark. But as we stand up here, we make no bones about it. Now, what we truly want is twofold. First of all, we want to encourage the people of God. We want to build you up in your faith. But second of all, and for me, Anyone who knows me, this is where I tend to really hit hard, is the salvation of your soul. So as I look out this morning, and I forgot my glasses, so to be honest, you're all a blur. Okay? I'm glad I put my font in 50. Brother, can I encourage you? Make it big and bold. Okay? But as I look out this morning, okay, this is what, now my fourth, fifth time preaching. I've got to know some of you really well. Okay? Some of you, I have not a clue who you are, where you come from. You could tell me your name. I've told you this before. I wouldn't even remember. But I don't know who you are. To be quite honest, I actually don't really care who you are either. And I don't mean that in a bad sense. But I don't care to the fact of preaching the gospel should have no fear. I shouldn't fear you because of who you are. I should fear you because of where you might go if I don't tell you the gospel. So this morning, I have edified you. I've encouraged you. Now I'm going to really hit you hard, okay? Salvation of your souls. That means this morning, if you're sitting in this, in this building and you have not come to saving faith in Christ, you need to listen. And listen well. There's no secret, as we stand here, Sunday by Sunday, we want to see your souls come to Christ. Why? Because we know where you're going if you don't. Paul made his sermon very, very, very personal for Agrippa because he keeps mentioning him by name. I won't do that this morning. I wished I could. And man, there's times, even in our own church, I'd love to call out a list of boys and girls' names, teenagers who I know do not know the Lord, but I fear their parents would beat me to death. <laughs> but this morning, I may not say your name, but God might be. Don't be surprised this morning, young person, older person, if what I'm about to say, you think, man, was Mert, did, did someone tell him about me? God does that. God has a habit of doing that. He takes the words and the statements of a sermon or a text and he directs them right to your heart. You're sitting there and you're going, oh, is he talking about me? No, please stop, go away. 
He must have been thinking of me when he was studying his notes. Stop it. <laughs> Paul made his sermon very, very personal. And God can make his word personal to you. He's done it to a number of us in this room. We can make you feel uncomfortable as you sit there listening to the gospel. We don't. God does. I am not some prophetic man. I'm a production manager Monday through Friday. I'm a daddy seven days a week. There's nothing special in any of us who stand up here. And if you sit here this morning and your heart and your conscience is pricked, it's not me that's done it. It's God. It's God that's doing a work in your heart and in your life. So you know what? You better listen. Perhaps in your mind you may be thinking how few Christians there are in your family. And as Agrippa sat there and he wondered, man, I've got Bernice I've got my family that I've come from. How on earth could I ever become a Christian? Your family may not have killed Christians like Agrippa's did. But you knew only too well that if you were to put your faith in Christ this morning, that you will have little sympathy at home. You'll have little sympathy from your wife or your husband, from your father or your mother. Very little sympathy from your family. You'll go into work tomorrow and you'll go, hey, I've become a Christian. And they'll laugh. And they'll mock you. They may not even mind you coming to church, but hey, listen, don't get too religious. Just keep it to yourself. Maybe like Agrippa, you're thinking about the reminders of your own sin in your life. Bernice was there. His life, as he thought about it, was there. I'm not saying this morning that you're warped like Agrippa. But Agrippa was a sinner. And so are you if you're not found in Christ. You know that sin is wrong. Because God says they're wrong. You don't have to be in a relationship like he was to be a sinner. In fact, the minute you're conceived, the Bible tells us that you're a sinner already. Young children, listen to me. And as your parents give you a good whack and tell you to listen, listen. You don't be born a good boy. Or a good girl. You're not born a little angel. Heck, you might look like it. Sometimes you might even act like it. But you're not. And this might be a little heavy, but you know what? If you keep living the way you do now in your sins then you will go to hell. And as much as that pains me and hurts me to say, the truth must be said above all else. I fear for the young people of our day. They get this watered down, oh, it drives me insane. Jesus loves me. If you're selling your sin, Jesus doesn't love you. You need to come to Christ and Him alone. We can have chore charts in our house like we do. And our kids will tick it off. And we'll go, great job. They might even get money at the end of the week. Who would know? But if we keep telling our children, just be a good boy or be a good girl... And as they sit in the seats every Sunday, we sit at peace. Listen. I'd far rather have a child. I don't, please don't do this. But I would far rather have a child climb those walls and hear the truth than come to a church and be made sit perfect and go to hell. 
Last Sunday at IBC, I had to take adult discipleship class. And the topic that I was given was evangelizing children. Man, I hit them hard. But you older people, and by older I mean older. (laughs) Diplomatic answer there. I had to think before I spoke. But I gave the example of a man in our church, okay? I've got two kids, and they are not like their daddy when it comes to speaking to people, okay? They are like their mummy. They're shy. They're backward. They don't like to look at people in the eye. Not that my wife does that now, but she did when she was younger. But I had a man in our church who for 18 months came up faithfully every single Sunday, stuck his hand out. And V would put her head down and not look. And Hobie, he'd somehow cling on to my leg. And the next Sunday. And that man kept coming and coming and coming to my kids. Is there anything in a handshake? No. Is there anything in coming every week? No. But there's something in showing Christ to a young person. And he did that. How many of us, sadly, when we come to church, do this? And we look this direction. And all we do is talk to adults. How many of us stop and go like that? And look a young boy or a young girl in the eye and ask them, Hey, how are you doing? Listen, you don't have to teach them theology. That'll come. But how are you going to sit down with a 16 or a 17-year-old boy and tell him that he's in sin looking at things on the Internet? For 17 years, you've never had an interest in his life. Can I encourage you, as one who back in my church in Macrofelt in Northern Ireland had an 80-year-old man, an 80-year-old man, and he was my best friend. So if you're 80... There's hope for you. (laughs) Your work here, it's not done. Until you take that dying breath, you should be proclaiming the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ every single day. Does that mean you only look for, what, 18 to whatever age? No. Look to the young people. You know what? We're all going to kick the bucket and die. And who's going to sit here? It's our young people. We have to make and put an interest in our young people. They're the next generation. So can I encourage you, grandparents, singles, those who have some time, get amongst the youth. There's a swimming event. When is that? Oh, he's lost his notes. Oh, man. <laughs> he has an iPad this size and he's still going. <laughs> Wednesday night. Donald Trump is not coming to Roseville. Pastor Eric has not made you any commitments. Can I encourage each and every one of you to show up to that? Don't make excuses. I'm tired. We're all tired. But are you tired of telling young people about Christ? Is that what you're saying? And I'm not putting you on a guilt trip here by any means, but what I'm saying is, our young people matter. These young boys and young girls over here, when was the last time, it's funny how the church divides itself, you've got young on this side and old on that side. When was the last time some of you older people took and wrestled these young boys? In our church, they call me the big kid. I don't know whether that's an insult or whatever else, but after our evening service at night, it turns into a circus. And normally I'm the ringleader at the front. Why? I'm up there tickling them and playing with them and being involved with them. You need to do the same. 
show an interest in the young people. It's back to our text. The Bible tells us in Romans 3 and 23 that all have sinned. All. Not, you know, after you're 18. All. All. And we've seen Agrippa's background, but now, now you look at Paul's. Paul stands up and gives his testimony, as it were, to speak. He tells Agrippa that, listen, I haven't been a Christian all my life. He'd been very religious. He'd lived as a Pharisee, but he'd not been a Christian. In verse 9 and 10 and 11, he gives a bit of the background. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Contrary. Against. Not wanting to stand with. You see, Paul was telling Agrippa this. It wasn't just your family that persecuted Christians. Look what I did. It, was, it wasn't my father. It wasn't my uncle. It wasn't my grandfather. It was me. I put Christians to death. I was the one who held their coats when they stoned Stephen. I was the one who organized and rallied and brought them all together to do what? To oppose the Christian faith. And you see what Paul is getting at here. He's saying, Agrippa, if you think your family has done things to believers that's awful, look at what I did. Paul says, look at me. Everything about my background was anti-Christ, anti-gospel, everything. Why did he do that? Why did he speak to Agrippa in that way? Paul knew that it was not going to be easy to become a Christian before people who you were once involved with. People who you work with. People who you used to socialize with. People who perhaps you even had the same pleasures with. That is why Paul says those things. Paul's thinking of the Jews who he was their blue-eyed boy. He was their blue-eyed boy. But now, he's everything opposite to what they are. And he knows that it's difficult and hard. Paul knew this. We know it. We know today that it's difficult to be a Christian. Young people, again, do not fall under the myth that being a Christian is easy. Because it is not. I don't know if Pastor Jeff will experience this next week, but Sunday morning is when the devil, oof, man, he comes in. Perhaps sins that you totally forgot about or hadn't confessed all come flooding into your mind. And you're thinking, man, I have to open up God's Word. Being a Christian is not easy. Ask yourself the question how would you cope with old friends who think that you've gone funny? How would you cope with people who think that you've gone religious, who now consider you to be very narrow-minded? How do you cope with old friends who laugh in your face at the very things that are now precious to you? Paul is able to lock a grip in the mind and say, those questions that you've just answered, I've answered them too. But what about us? What about us this morning? How many of us are sitting here not Christians because of some of those reasons? If I go home tonight and I say to my spouse that I'm a Christian, what on earth is going to happen? If I go into my family and say, hey, I've accepted Christ as my Savior and Lord, what on earth are they going to say? 
What will my workers say tomorrow? If I walk into college or university tomorrow and say, hey, I gave my life to Christ yesterday. Are the friends who I are close with, are they going to mock me and walk away? How would you cope with that situation? If you're one of those people this morning, how would you cope? Oh, they'll laugh at me. They'll make fun of me. They'll ridicule me. If you ever need help in a time of trouble, remember Acts 26, verse 22. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand. You can't do this on your own. Paul can say to Agrippa, I understand your fears, but you know what? I've been there too. He's encouraging this man. He's preparing him for the gospel. He's taken away any of those fears and those preconceived notions. And he answered the question, well, how am I supposed to get this help? Your help only comes from God. And no one else. Here we have Paul, the preacher, who can identify with his hearer all the problems. If Agrippa is to become a Christian, he's going to have to give up that relationship with Bernice. Today I'm here to tell you the same. That if you're to become a Christian, there has to be a change in your life. There must be a change in your life. You can't keep going on doing the things you do or the things that gives you pleasure. You see, whether a preacher that stands here or anyone else, we have been given a commission direct from God to tell you what. Look at verse 18. To open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. We can't do it. If we could, we would. We have to tell you of these things. That's our commission. Pastor Jeff, next Sunday, that's your commission. Preach the word. Preach the gospel. If you're sitting here this morning, you're in darkness if you do not know Christ. Why is it that we can sit under the sign of the gospel for years and years and years? And still make no change. It's because we're blind to these things. It's because our ears are plugged up and we don't want to listen. I remember in my old church in Macrofelt, we had a wall like this. And it was all brick. I used to love counting the brick. That's how I got away from it. But you shouldn't do that. You should listen to the word of God. See, God tells us that if we're not believing in Him, then we indeed are condemned already. It's not a fact that we wait around for the judgment day. Today, if we are not in Christ, we are already condemned. This is what sin does to us. That is why it's so important to tell our young people what sin is. Don't pussyfoot around the issue. Tell them it right between the eyeballs. Tell them the truth. Don't be afraid. Paul stood there in the midst of all those people who wanted to stick a spear right through him, and he said that God would be his help. As you set your children down or as you engage them, ask God to help you, and then do it. Praise God that in Jesus there's light to shine into the darkest of hearts. What heart was darker than that of Saul of Tarsus? What mind was so shut up against the gospel and this zealous Pharisee who killed Christians? Yet the light of God broke into that man's heart and into his mind. And if he can do that with Paul, he can do it with us. Praise God that he has done it with us. There's forgiveness for all of our sins. 
There's not a man or a woman sitting here this morning whose sins are beyond the cleansing of the blood of Christ. Not one. You might think that you've done the vilest sins in all of the world. And hey, maybe you have. I don't know some of you. God can still forgive you. But you need to seek Him while He may be found. There is forgiveness for all of our sins in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is summed up in verse 23. If you fear followers of teaching your children the gospel, read that verse. That the Christ would suffer. That he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Christ died, Christ rose, and he sits with the Father. Praise be to God. Why would Christ suffer? Your children might ask, or some older person might ask. He suffered for sin. He suffered for my sin. And if he had not borne our sins, then we would be damned. We sing that old hymn, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. There is no one else good enough apart from him. He suffered because of love. We always like to quote John 3, 16 when it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That's grace and mercy rolled up. It's God's holiness that made Calvary necessary, but it's God's love that makes Calvary possible. If it wasn't for his holiness, if it wasn't for his three-time holiness demanding that sin should be punished, there'd be no need for Calvary. But God is a holy God. And he demanded that someone would suffer and that someone was our Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly, and quickly, almost, almost. How does Agrippa, or how does Agrippa react to all these things? Paul stands before him, proclaims the truth. How does he react? How do you react? How do you react when you hear the gospel of Christ? Well, there's always going to be some people like Festus who just cannot understand it. Festus heard exactly the same things as Agrippa heard, but look at his response. His response was, man, you've gone off your rocker. You are completely mad. Festus had dismissed the whole matter out of hand as something complete and utter nonsense. What are you babbling on about, man? Paul replies, Festus, I'm not mad. But the king knows of these things. It's an interesting statement when it says, The king knows of these things before whom I also speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. Who revealed them? God. God reveals them. There are some people who hear the gospel and they cannot deny it. And God is at work. Some are nodding. That's you. That's faith in Christ. And God makes it clear to your heart and your mind and your soul. And you see your sin and you fall on your knees. And as Pilgrim was in Pilgrim's Progress... And the burden rolls off your back and down into the grave. And you've been set free. Not never to sin again. But to have access to God. To have forgiveness. But some of you here this morning have a thing in your back that's huge. Is God showing you Calvary this morning? Agrippa knew these things. 
he heard Paul. He's not saying just in an offhand manner, saying, yeah, I know these things, I know you believe. Agrippa knew, he knew the truth. He knew what Paul was saying. Does that make him a Christian? No. Agrippa was a believer in the Jewish faith, but he wasn't a believer in Christ. He was almost a Christian. What does that mean? There's been many different debates about what this verse says, and time does not permit to go into all the different textual variances, but some people say that it's in a short time, or you can persuade me and all the rest. I think the New King James sums it up when it says, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. But look at the whole context. The context here would lead me to say that Agrippa's words were a sign of severe conviction. But severe wasn't far enough. Paul says that he believed these things and they were not hidden and they were revealed. But Agrippa's reply was almost, almost thou persuades me. You might think that almost is better than nothing at all. Almost is never enough. Remember the words of that old hymn. Almost persuaded, harvest is past. Almost persuaded, doom comes at last. Almost cannot avail. Almost is but to feel. Sad, sad, that bitter wheel. Almost, but lost. Almost, my friends, means hell. If you are a 100-meter runner, and for 99 meters you run your heart out, and you sprint as hard as you can, and you stop at 99, you don't finish. If you've been to Sunday school and memorized these things and you've sat in a Christian home and these truths have been washed over you for years and years and years and you know the words of hymns that we sing, does that make you a Christian? No. It's only by putting a true faith in Christ does that. Agrippa believed the scriptures. This man believed what Paul was saying to him. He was moved to the point of almost. Was there a fear of what people might say? Why did he say almost? He was fearful. He wondered what people would say. He worried he might get mocked. He loved his sin so much that he was prepared not to give up that relationship with Bernice and yet be lost. How many of us sitting here this morning have been almost persuaded? Some of you have heard the gospel and many, many, many times. And there's nothing in the gospel that you would disagree with. You're not like Festus and you laugh the whole matter off and you think it's a load of rubbish. You keep coming week after week. Perhaps you have come to this point of almost. My friend, let me tell you this. I'm being honest with you. To be almost is to be in the most ridiculous position for a human being to be in. In fact, I would argue that to be in the position of Festus is perhaps a more logical reason to be in. It's more logical to dismiss the gospel as a load of rubbish than to believe it almost. You can understand a person who dismisses the gospel. You can understand someone who says it's a load of rubbish or nonsense. But how on earth can you understand a person who tells them 
tells you that, yeah, they know they're a sinner and that they know that they believe in Christ and that he rose from the dead, and yet they don't put their faith in him. Perhaps they have that little date in the front of their Bible and they think that that's enough. Or they raised their hand for Jesus 20 years ago and they think that that is enough. Almost is not enough. Paul says, I would to God that not only thou, but all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am. Altogether is where you should be. You see, if God had almost loved us, there would be no gospel. If Christ had almost died on the cross, there would be no forgiveness for sins. There should be no almost about our dealings with God. It should be altogether. Everything. Everything in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Everything. It means conviction of your sins. It means repentance from your sins. It means faith in Christ. It means trusting in him. It means being born again. You see, the gospel, as sad as it is, Agrippa didn't believe it. He says he did, but he didn't. His sin was gross. But it doesn't matter what our sin is. In God's eyes, sin is sin is sin is sin. Stealing a cookie jar from the cookie bin is sin. If your parents tell you not to. So was this sin of this man's relationship. You see, man is not merely in a mess. He is a mess. He doesn't merely live in a sinful environment. He's part of that environment. He makes that environment. This world is what you and I have made of it. We contribute to it. We are sinful people. We are not merely under the influence of sin. We are born in it. And we wallow in it. Did you ever sit and wonder what it would be like to live in a world with no sin? Oh, it'd be so good. And yet, sadly, how many of us, if we're being honest, don't take sin as serious as we should do? Because our holy God takes it very, very serious. Praise God that the gospel offers us a Savior and a real person. When this person, this Savior, comes into our lives, it's God's doing something for us. We've got peace. We've got joy. Sometimes. He brings us something. He gives us a new nature. He transforms us and makes us new creatures. He gives us new hearts, new desires. There is a God that we will all meet. And he will either be our judge or he will be our savior. To almost believe, to almost repent, to almost ask forgiveness of our sins is totally hell. What should we do? Run to Christ. And do it today. God in his kindness has given you yet one more day. He's given you one more opportunity to come in and to worship him. And to be with his people. And to hear his word. But. And it could all be over. And then what? God has given you another opportunity to hear the gospel. 
But remember that verse in Genesis 3 when it says, My spirit will not always strive with man. It scares the wits out of me. Today. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Don't think, oh, well, Eric's not here, so I want to do it when Eric's here. To the signs of things Eric might never... Well, I'm just kidding. He's not in sabbatical. He's here. Listen. We don't save you. It doesn't matter who you listen to. If God is speaking directly to your heart today, then today is the day of salvation. You might not hear his voice tomorrow because you could be dead. Don't play with God, my friend. If God has done a dealing in, or is dealing with your heart, turn to him today. That he may not just be almost, but may be altogether yours. All your good works won't get you to heaven. You being a good neighbor, even donating money to the firemen, as good as that is, doesn't get you to heaven. Only Christ does. Ask him to forgive you for your sins. No matter how wicked and vile they are. Come to him in faith. Come to him believing. And come to him knowing that he will. Like that last line says. I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Praise God that he is not removed. Amen.